Well, welcome, Sunlight. It's good to be here. For those of you that weren't here last time I was here, I was here a few weeks ago, a month or two. I guess it was a couple months ago. And last time I was here, I think it was John's wife who was sick. And now I'm back because John's sick. And so I'm not sure if there's some connection, some correlation. But anyways, for those of you that weren't there, um, that don't remember me or have just tried to forget me, let me just introduce myself. My name's Eric Hall. I work for the denomination that Sunlight's a part of, the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches in Fort Wayne. Part of what I get to do is this. I get to fill in at churches. I get to meet with pastors. I get to hang out with pastors and encourage and equip and resource them and resource churches and stuff. And today's an example of that. I'm married. My wife Becky is here with me. I have three kids that are grown. My daughter Abby and son-in-law Brian are with me as well. So uh, if you want to come down and say hi, they would love to say hi. So um, you can do that. I have two then uh, sons underneath younger than them. One's married and one is a junior in college. And he is down in Florida right now enjoying 75 degree weather. So that's rough. So if you have a Bible with you this morning and you want to open it to the book of Second Chronicles in the Old Testament, you know, kind of turn before Psalms and get your way there. It's a little hidden. Um, so I know that this is going to date me a little bit, but I know that you guys are going to be with me. So growing up, I remember Saturday mornings as like cartoon time. You guys with me? Like Saturday? Okay, yeah. This is the participatory part of the sermon, so feel free to jump in. Saturday mornings, we would wake up and run downstairs, plant yourself in front of the TV for hours and watch cartoons. That was the only time we could get cartoons. My, you know, at home, when I was younger, we had like two and a half channels at any given time. So this was our chance to get up and get. Saturday mornings now are about news, talk, and paid programming. I checked. No cartoons. But back when I was a kid... And, of course, I hate any sentence that starts like that. Back when I was a kid, Saturday mornings were all about cartoons. They were dominated exclusively by cartoons. And here's some of the shows. Do you remember? I wrote down some of the cartoons I remember. Like, I remember on Saturday mornings watching Scooby-Doo. By the way, because I did some research for this. Scooby-Doo, you know when it premiered? 1969 was when Scooby-Doo started. And Scooby-Doo was a big deal on those rare times when the Harlem Globetrotters would join in with them. Or maybe even Batman would show up with Scooby-Doo. So that was a big deal. Of course, Wile E. Coyote, the Roadrunner show, was huge. Bugs Bunny and Tweety. Unfortunately, I remembered the Smurfs as a Saturday morning cartoon show. That was 1981 when that come out, came out. Superman and the Justice League, all different superheroes. Yeah, back when that was the original superheroes. And of course, I wrote down Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. I don't know that you could get away with that today. That premiered in 1972. But right now, some of you are singing the Fat Albert song, aren't you? I mean, you can hear it in your head. Hey, 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 yeah. I mean, some of the shows were just terrible. But they really all we had, and we thought it was great. But for me, when I think about Saturday mornings, I think the quintessential Saturday morning kind of cartoon for me was something called Schoolhouse Rocks. Do you guys remember Schoolhouse Rocks? For anyone under the age of, I don't know, 30, 40, you may have no clue unless you've seen them on YouTube what these are. But for me, these were classic. Schoolhouse Rocks were these three-minute shorts. These three-minute shorts that were shown on Saturday mornings, and they were help, supposed to help us learn things. And to this day, I can still remember the songs. Do you remember any of them? 
So I'm going to give you some. See if you can remember this. Do you guys remember if I could, if you could skate? It would be great if you could skate. Is anybody? A figure eight, the little girl on the ice skating a figure eight. Does anybody remember? Th these are some of the, like, little ones. My hero, zero. Before you came along, we counted on our fingers and toes. Yeah. Lolly, 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 get your adverbs here. How about this one that was from way back? If you remember what this one is, Rufus Xavier Sarsaparilla. The kangaroo followed him home, and now he is his. It was all about pronouns. That's how we learned pronouns. One of my favorites, technically not Schoolhouse Rocks, but this is one my wife and I remembered, was this horrible, horrible animation that had this cowboy hat on, and I hanker for a hunk of cheese. Yeah. <laughs> my wife made me promise I would not sing any of these when I told her what I was doing, so... I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Yeah. I can picture it. I can hear the song. They stand out to me, but maybe the infamous one for me, the one I remember the most, was a little one called Conjunction Junction. You guys are in. What's your, you guys got it, yeah. Conjunction Junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. Conjunction Junction, how's that function? Then he responds, he says, I got three favorite cars, they get most of my job done. Conjunction, junction, what's the function? I got and, but, and, or, they'll get you pretty far. Conjunction, junction. Now, don't ask me why, but true story, as a, this all ties together. Don't ask me why, but a while ago, I was thinking about some of these conjunctions and the Bible. And in specific, I was thinking about the simple word, but. And what we want to do this morning is kind of look at some but statements in the Bible. And we're going to look at three in specific. According to conjunction, junction, but is an opposite. And here's the quote, not this, but that. Not this, but that. So what I want to do this morning is look at three times the simple little word but appears in the Bible and makes all the difference. All the difference. Okay? You with me? Three different times the word but shows up and makes all the difference. We're just going to give three but statements if you're into taking notes. Three but statements. Plus it's fun because we get to say the word but over and over. <laughs> Let me pray and then we'll, we'll jump into that. Heavenly Father, God, thanks for sunlight. Thanks for the chance to be here and just have some fun and laugh with them. I pray, God, that you would uh, speak through these next few minutes. I pray that your words uh, would come through, not my own. I pray that you would challenge our hearts, encourage our spirits. God, I just pray for John and the health, and I pray for the countless other people that I know are still sick and struggling with this COVID disease. God, that you would bring healing and comfort to them and to John, and that he would be able to return to this church soon. Uh, I just pray that you would uh, bless our next few minutes as we talk about butt statements in the Bible. In your name, amen. Butt statement number one. If you want to write this down, what I put down is not pride, but humility. Not pride, but humility. We see this in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. So if you have your Bible, open it up to 2 Chronicles 26. I'm going to read through the verses, make a few comments, and you can try to follow along. So I'm opening up at 2 Chronicles 26 verse 1. We're going to scan through a bunch of these verses. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father, Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Elath. By the way, when you read the Old Testament and you stumble on names, you just got to say it with confidence. 
and act like you know how to say it, and people will think you're really smart. So just as we go through some of these names, we'll just like, wow, he, he knows how to pronounce all these. He must be smart. He was the one who rebuilt Eloth and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. So here's the deal. Judah appoints a new king, Uzziah. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 15 years, so, or 52 years. Just imagine with me becoming king at the age of 16. And just to put that into perspective, the youngest American president ever, again, do you know who that is? Everybody goes to John F. Kennedy, who was real close. The answer is Theodore Roosevelt. The youngest American president ever was 42 when he took office, just under 43. If you're 50 and become president, you're likely in the top 10 youngest presidents ever, okay? But Uzziah became king at 16, 16 years old. And if that's not enough, he reigned 52 years until he was 68, 52 years. Of the 20 or so kings that Judah had, only one reigned longer than this teenage king, and that's Hezekiah by just a couple years. He was 16 years old when he became king of this nation and reigned the second longest of anyone in Judah's history. Okay, so that's what's going on in the first few verses. Follow me now, starting up at verse 4. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And this may seem like an easy verse to skip over. Like, not a big deal, right? Isn't that what kings do, especially in the Old Testament? The guys in the Bible, of course he did what was right, right? But again, of the 20 kings of Judah, only five have this statement said about them. Fifteen of them didn't, didn't even try to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This teenage king at age 16 is one of only five that has this said about him. He did what was right in the eyes of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. God blessed him. He prospered. And the nation prospered because of him. Verse 16 through 15, we're not going to read all of them, okay? But verses 16 through 15 is just this kind of this chronicling, this telling of all the great things that happened. All the things that happened during these, these nine verses list out all the ways God blessed Uzziah and the nation during his reign. So just scanning through those a little bit. Verse 6 says he went to war and won. Verse 8, his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt. Picture all the way back down. Because he had become very powerful. Verse 15, his fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. The message translation, one of my favorite kind of secondary reading translations, said everything seemed to go his way. Okay, so up through verse 15, we can summarize saying life was good for Uzziah. Things were going well for him. Now, before we go on, let me just ask you, do any of you feel this way? Like, if you were honest, you'd say, yep, life is good right now. You have a good job, decent income, a nice home, good marriage, healthy family, whatever. If you were to evaluate life right now, you'd say, yeah, 
I mean, not to brag, I may not be the richest guy in the world, but life is okay. Life's good right now. I have a healthy marriage, I got healthy kids, good car, nice house, whatever. Life is good. And that's probably how I would answer, so it's okay. And I ask that because in verse, the next verse, we read what may be one of the saddest statements in all the Bible. And it begins with the word, but. Now remember, not this, but that. So look with me at verse uh, 16. So we get done with these nine verses listing all the things Uzziah did. His fame spread far and wide. The pharaohs in Egypt knew about him. God helped him. Remember, he was 16 when this all started. And then in verse 16, but, but, after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Reading through here, he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Doesn't sound like a big deal, but just a little bit of Old Testament history. Nobody did that except for the priests. This was a big deal in ancient Israel. So he entered into the Lord to burn incense on the temple, on the altar of incense. Azariah, the priest, with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord, followed him in. They confronted him and said, it is not right for you, Uzziah. Now remember, they're confronting the most powerful man they know, the king. Eighty of them he took with him. It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord your God. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. Yeah, no kidding. While he was raging at the priests... In, the presence, in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah and the chief priests and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah, here it is, had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate home, leprous and excluded from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, took over. But, verse 16, after he had become successful, powerful, his pride led to his downfall. After he became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He thought he knew better, that the rules didn't apply to him. And what's so ironic is the thing that led to his downfall was the very blessing of God. God blessed him. He became successful. He became powerful. Life was good. And that very blessing led to his downfall. The ESV version starts that version by saying, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. His successfulness led to pride, which led to his destruction because he thought he could do it on his own. He thought, I built these walls on my own. I extended the war. I won the wars. I extended this. It was Uzziah who did it, not God. And the success started to corrupt him. Not humility, but pride. So what I like to do as we walk through these, we have two more statements we're going to work our way through. What I like to do is we're going to talk about each point and then apply each one kind of have an application right there and then move on to point number two rather than kind of waiting for the end. So before I move on to the second but statement, 
let me just ask you, it's what I did last time I was here, what is your but statement? What's the thing in your life that's going to take you out, left unchecked? Verse 16, but after Eric became successful, blank. What's your but statement? What are the areas of your life that could lead to your downfall? Where is the pride going to creep in and lead to your downfall? Maybe some of you listening or watching are dangerously close to living that. Where is pride pushing you to live outside of God's standards because you think you know better? Or the rules don't apply to me. I'm just assuming none of us are tempted to walk into the temple and burn incense, like Uzziah was. But where is pride potentially leading to your downfall? At work, in a relationship, in your thought life? Where? What is your but statement in your life? Do you know? And if you don't, maybe the application is spend some time thinking about that figuring it out before it rears up. And if this is you, and I wrote down, it really isn't it, all of us, let me challenge you with one simple application, one simple thing to do. Tell someone. Tell someone. Find a trusted friend, a safe, small group, whatever, and tell someone. Tell them, this is my butt statement. If I'm going to get taken out, here's how it's going to happen. If left unchecked, this is how my pride will take me down. And I need you to hold me accountable. I need your help. Tell someone. Find a friend. Find a small group. Find a pastor. Tell somebody. This is how pride's going to take me out. Because I don't want to end up like Uzziah, alone and excluded. But statement number one, not pride, but humility. But statement number two I wrote down as not reputation, but reality. Not reputation, but reality. And if you're following along in your Bible, flip all the way to the back to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We're going to have three different passages we're going to look at, so sorry to make you turn around. Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, the backstory: Revelation 3. Revelations chapter 2 and 3 are seven letters, if you will written to seven different churches, just like the book of Galatians is really a letter written to the church in Galatia. The book of Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesia, all those. Revelation 2 and 3 are seven letters to seven churches. Here in Revelation chapter 3 is the fifth letter to a church in Sardis. Just think present-day Turkey. Okay, this is a letter to them. Let me read these six verses. To the angel in the church of, in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. Listen to this. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but, remember, but not this, but that, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. 
I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, which is how all seven verses, or how all seven letters stop. The church in Sardis suffers from what I wrote down as the social media problem. Church at Sardis suffers from the Facebook problem. On Facebook, we only post what makes us look good, right? Facebook and Instagram, the pictures are carefully staged, edited, and tweaked to project just the right image. In short, to make us and those around us look good. Just Google the words Facebook envy, if you don't believe me. Everyone looks good on Instagram, right? Everybody does. Everybody's having more fun than I am. Everybody has a better family than I does. Everything's good when I go to Facebook, when I scroll through Instagram. There's no problems. Everybody's happy. Things look great, right? Happy marriages, beautiful vacations, perfect kids. Everything's good. The pictures just look amazing. But the reality is obviously very different. No one posts on social media about their problems, their hurts, their struggles, their failures, the things they're missing out on. If Facebook or Instagram was around during the early church years, this would be exactly the problem that the church in Sardis had, reputation over reality. They looked good, but, not this, but that, but they really weren't good. Apparently this church, the people attending it, had a reputation for being alive, for being mature, Christ-following Christians. But it was just a reputation. It wasn't a reality. It was this carefully curated, staged picture. They knew all the right words. They'd probably been attending their church for a long time. They knew what to say. They knew which services to go to. They were always there when the doors were open. They had all the right answers. They looked good. But it wasn't, apparently, reality. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but, which makes all the difference, but you are dead. Now, having worked in churches, having been in churches, I know how easy it is to fall into this trap. I mean, this is so easy. And so by way of just application, I wonder if this applies to any of us right now. I know it's a temptation of mine. I mean, I work for a Christian denomination, for goodness sakes. I do things like fill in preaching at churches. I meet with pastors for a living. It's so easy to cultivate a reputation to maintain this Facebook-like picture that everything's fine. I don't have any problems. Look at me, I'm up here preaching. That I never struggle, that I have nothing but blessings, that I never doubt it's so easy to focus on reputation over reality, isn't it? The reality is very different, by the way, if you got to know me well. I have lots of problems. I have lots of doubts. I'm all, sometimes I'm not sure. I do struggle. Things don't always work out the way I want them to. So my question for you on this second but statement is, does this describe any of you this morning? Have any of us missed the mark and focused on reputation instead of reality? I think all of us struggle from time to time. So for those of you struggling with reputation over reality, three quick suggestions by way of application coming out of here. Suggestion number one is, re the Bible says, repent. Verse three says this, repent 
Repent in the Bible means simply to turn around, to change your mind and go the other way. It's this military-like term of a military formation, marching one direction and then making an about face. That's what it means to repent. So if you're struggling with reputation, the first step is this change your mind. Just make a commitment. Say, I'm not going to do it anymore. If people ask me how I'm doing, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to start telling the truth. Number one is repent. Number two, what this church is challenged to do is remember. I got saved when I was 18, senior in high school, just after near graduation time. And when I first got saved, I think like all of us, there was this fire in me and the things I did. I did everything with intensity when it came to Christianity back then. I read my Bible, prayed, served, shared my faith. But over time, actions wane, don't they? Over time, we slip into reputation instead of reality. Revelation 3 calls us to remember the things we used to do and strengthen those. So maybe you need to remember what it was like a little bit. And my third thing that I added on this was tell someone. Find a trusted person and say, you know what? I think I'm struggling with playing this Christian game a little bit. I'm more worried about looking good than being good. I don't know that I've been honest about my struggles. And I want to. Tell someone. Tell your pastor. Tell a friend. Tell your spouse. Tell a f- whatever. For me, I have a small group of couples that my wife and I meet with, that we've met with for years, and they know the reality. They know the junk that I've been through. And I have a group of guys I meet with every morning downtown Fort Wayne on Monday mornings at 6 a.m., dark, cold, and early, at an apartment downtown Fort Wayne. And together in those groups, we're just real. We try hard to focus on reality, not reputation. And we're honest. You need to tell somebody. Tell somebody. Find a place where you can be truthful. So but statement number one was pride, not humility. Pride, not pride, but humility. But statement number two is not reputation, but reality. And finally, but statement number three, I wrote down as not demanding, but trust. Not demanding, but trust. I might have referenced this verse last time I was here, but it's okay. It's in Daniel chapter 3. If you're going in your Bible, Daniel's after Isaiah, after Psalms. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is one of those classic Sunday school stories. If you've gone to Sunday school, if you grew up in a church, you heard Daniel chapter 3, I guarantee it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace. There's songs written about it. There's Sunday school flannel graphs somewhere about this story. Let me read some of it to you so you get the idea. King Neb- it starts out this chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plains in Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, etc., to come to the dedication of the image. So they all got together, verse 3, and stood before it. Then the herald proclaimed, this is what you are commanded to do, verse 4, 
O people, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of musical images, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, this is a problem. A little bit of backstory. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were Israelites. Babylon came in and destroyed the nation, beat them in war, and then Babylon took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with lots of other. They tended to take all the young. We're back to teenagers. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were likely 16 years old. Let's just think 16, 17, 18. Juniors, seniors in high school. Who are these guys? The Babylons took them and moved them to Babylon. And the theory was by taking these foreign people we conquered and moving them into our country, they'll become Babylonians. And they'll assimilate into our culture. And it'll just grow our nation. That was their theory, was bring people here, feed them our food, teach them our customs, make them bow down at our idols, and they'll become like us. Okay? So that's, these, that's what these guys were doing. That's the story of Daniel and Piedrach, teenagers living in a strange land with strange customs, a different culture, a foreign language, and, of course, a religion full of idol worship. Everyone was required when they heard the music to fall down and worship this huge idol of gold. Anyone who didn't do this would be thrown into a furnace and burned alive. Certainly not something to be looked forward to. Skip with me to verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said, O King, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O King, leave forever. You have issued a decree. O king, that everyone who hears the sound of all the musical instruments must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But, this is one of our but statements, but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abingo, who pay no attention to you, O king. They never serve you, never serve, neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned them. So these astrologers, and just call them what they were, tattletales, these astrologers come to the king, the most powerful person, and say, hey, those Jews that you set up, those three guys, they're ignoring you. They're not bowing down. They're not doing it. And of course, the king gets ticked off, brings them in front of them, and then we pick it up in verse 16. And the king said, what's going on? Why won't you do this? And then Shad, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. And they're going to tell him something. What we want to do, by the way, is we want to jump to verse 19. Because we all know how the story ends, right? They do get thrown into the fires, fiery furnace. And they live, and it's all miraculous. That's where we want to jump to. But verses 16 and 18 point a paint kind of another application. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are flown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. And then we want to jump and say, and God did, right? Because he did. And he is able to save us. He can save you today. Well, look at verse 18. But Remember, this is what we're doing here. But even if he does not, 
we want you to know, King, that we will never, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. But even if he didn't, doesn't. From three teenagers standing before the most powerful man in the world at that time saying, God, we know God can and is able to save us, but even if he doesn't. They moved away from demanding to trust. They didn't demand that God answers them. In fact, they never would have said, verse 18, unless they weren't sure if they were going to live or not. I mean, you catch, like, why would you throw that in? If they were 100% confident they were going to make it out of here, they never would have said, verse 18. They weren't sure. They thought maybe we'll get thrown into the fiery furnace and we'll get burned up and die. That's what they were thinking. They didn't demand an answer from God like some tantrum-throwing two-year-old. Instead, they trusted God no matter the outcome. They hoped for a miracle but didn't demand one. They left everything in the hands of God. The ESV version, if you had it, starts that verse by saying, but if not, three words, but if not. So just think about that little phrase, but if not. I want my prayers answered, but if not. I want long life and good health, but if not. I want our children to have faith and to prosper, but if not. I want to see miracles happen, but if not, dot, dot, dot. If God says no to your cherished dreams and your fondest hopes, will you still trust him? If God says no to your plans for the future, will you still serve him? If God says no when through tears you pray for those you love, will you still trust him? This but statement brings me face to face with a doctrine. I kind of made it up, but I don't like it. Called the unpredictability of God. It just means that God does what he wants to, not what I want him to, and not what I expect him to do. I don't know if you've caught that yet. God does what God wants to do. Frequently not what I expect him to do, and frequently not what I want him to do. The unpredictability of God. These three teenage men had a big God, and they knew that their personal deliverance might not be the most important thing to him. That's so critical. Because most of us, like me, when we get into a tight spot, the only thing we can think about is making sure we get out okay. So we pray, God, get me out of this jam. Make the pain stop. Fix the problem. And sometimes we might say, if it be your will. But in reality, we don't really mean that. Because we want God's will and my will to be the same. We hope God's will is the same as ours. But reality is it's often not. It's like we see through this glass darkly. We see just a little glimmer of God's purposes. Like we peek through a keyhole or a pinhole and we see this little picture. But God sees the whole panorama of history. A couple examples. You don't need, we won't turn there or anything. But in Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12 is the apostle James. Remember him? He gets killed with a sword. Then later in the chapter... Peter gets let out of prison miraculously. Why? Why did one die and one get set free? Hezekiah, the longest king in the Old Testament, asked for and is given 15 more years on his life. Rachel, from the book of Genesis, dies in childbirth on her way back to her home. Why? 
One man gets cancer and dies at age 42. Another man lives to be 85 or 90. Why? One child does well and another struggles all his life. Why? One family knows prosperity and seems to have it made while another can barely make ends meet. Why? Your friend is promoted and you are passed over. Why? Two soldiers go to war and only one comes home. Why? One child is born healthy and another isn't. Why? Some prayers are answered and others are never answered. Why? This is the butt statement of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abingo. Believing that God can save them, but even if he doesn't. Not demanding, but choosing to trust God even when things don't make sense. Even when God doesn't do what I want him to do. Even when God doesn't solve the problem. Before I wrap up, before the team comes up to close us, let me just ask you, does this describe you? Maybe this morning you've been edging so slowly into this attitude of demanding, and maybe even edging into this place of losing trust. Like you're just not sure. Maybe you've been praying for the disease to go to the, away, for a child to return to faith, for the job to return, whatever. And you need to be reminded of these three teenage boys standing before a hot furnace saying, but even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't. Three but statements. But state number one, not pride, but humility. But when he became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. But statement number two, not reputation, but reality. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Finally, but statement number three, not demanding, but trusting, but even if he doesn't. Let me close in prayer, and then Aaron and the team is going to lead us in a closing song. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful for the chance to be here with them and share. God, I'm so challenged in my own life by these statements. I so often want to project a reputation that makes me look really good preaching to people, filling in. I want to I impress them, God. It's so easy to fall into that trap of reputation over reality, of pride, not humility. And God, just work on all of us. Help us to tell somebody what's going on in our life. God, I pray especially for those people who maybe are struggling with the unpredictability of God. They're, they're, they're trying to trust you, but they just don't, they don't see it. The prayers are seeming to go unanswered. The disease isn't getting better. The pain isn't going away. The problem isn't getting solved. God, may you work in their lives right now. Help them have this faith that even when you don't seem to respond, you love them and are there. God, help us to trust, not demand in everything we do. God, I just pray these things in your name. Amen.